Father, we thank you for, uh, yeah, for, for Sage and Ruthann and for just this past trip. We thank you that it was productive, um, that it was helpful, and just for them thinking through future ministry. Uh, we do pray that you continue to prepare the way for them and uh, provide and, uh, yeah, help them to uh, just have more clarity on what ministry in the future might look like in Japan. We pray that you would open doors um, and that you would use the both of them um, for the sake of the gospel and for your glory. God, I pray as we turn now to a time in your word that you would teach us, give us humble hearts, um, help us to see your word as truth, as uh, something that is good for us to hear and to live according to. Um, yeah, teach us by your spirit now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're starting a new series tonight, um, and we're going to jump back into just going through a short book of the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is toward the end of the Old Testament, uh, where the minor prophets are. So it goes Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then Micah and Nahum. And we are just taking the first few verses of the book. And uh, our message tonight will serve kind of more like just a general survey of the book or like an introduction. And then when we come back in January, we'll pick it back up and, and we'll finish the rest of the book. All right, so uh, Jonah 1, and it will be in verses 1 to 3. Let me go ahead and read it for us, and then we'll jump right into our outline. All right, so Jonah 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. That is the word of God. We'll take this in three parts. Um, and each of these sections uh, will hopefully help us understand a fuller picture and maybe even help us kind of relearn uh, some of these ideas. It's a really bare minimum uh, outline, but we'll start with number one, which is the book. So I want us to just get a better understanding of the book of Jonah itself. Now I'm guessing that most, if not all of you, um, are at least somewhat familiar with the story of Jonah. Or maybe uh, that is from just Sunday school growing up, or maybe that's from, uh, you remember like your old children's storybook Bible, uh, or maybe that's just from VeggieTales. Like, how many of you guys watched VeggieTales growing up? I don't know if that's still... Okay, yeah, I watched VeggieTales too. And they actually made a movie about this, about this story a while back. Um, and in that movie, there is an asparagus uh, named Jonah, and he is sent to go to Nineveh. And uh, instead, he boards a ship with uh, these people called the pirates who don't do anything uh, until a storm comes, and, uh, and the storm's for Jonah. And so because he loses a game of go fish... He is thrown overboard, and uh, he finally goes to Nineveh, and he preaches God's message of repentance. So it's pretty similar to, to, to actually the story in the Bible. Um, but if it's not VeggieTales, if it's not maybe the children's storybook Bible version, uh, when you think of the, book, the story of Jonah, probably the other thing that comes to mind most is the fish, right, or the, the whale, or that famous animal in this story. And so... I'm aware that, that most of you, if not all of you, might already have this like, pre-existing version of this story in your minds. And because of that, um, I think we might read this book of our Bibles maybe a little bit differently than actually what God intended. Like, I think because we have this like, version 
of the story in our minds already, we might miss out on some of the things that God is actually trying to teach us about ourselves and also about him. We might miss what is actually the true purpose of this book. And so here's just some uh, background and context about the book of Jonah. Jonah is part of the collection of what is called the Minor Prophets, um, or the Book of the Twelfth. And so that stretches from Hosea all the way to Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament. And Jonah himself, he was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel. So the kingdom was divided at this time. Jonah was from the north, uh, Israel. And the minor prophets are filled with God's message of salvation and judgment to his people delivered through the mouths of these people called the prophets. If you guys remember on Sunday, um, not too long ago, we went through the book of Micah, right? That's another minor prophet. And if you look at how uh, Jonah 1.1 starts, this is characteristic of other prophetic books. And it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And uh, if you look in some of the other minor prophets, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they all start with that introduction. Okay, now the word of the Lord came. But that's maybe where the similarities end, because unlike many of the other prophetic books, which mostly focus on the message that God wants them to speak or the content of that message, this book is not so much about the message itself, but it is about the prophet Jonah. Right? It's actually about the prophet himself. And if you read throughout this book, there's really only one sentence of Jonah's preaching, so to speak. Uh, 47 out of 48 verses of this uh, of this uh, book are narrative. And that's a little bit unique and different. Something else that is distinct about the book of Jonah is that there is this emphasis on God's sovereignty as creator. So, uh, for example, in, jo- uh, in chapter 1, verse 9, Jonah describes Yahweh as the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And as you read throughout the book, you see God do things like he stirs up the sea, he causes, they cast lots, right, to figure out who to throw into the sea, and God causes the lots to fall where they may. Um, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah and to spit him out. God commands the worm and the plant and the wind in chapter four. Uh, God appoints certain things to happen. And there's just all these things with animals and creation and nature, and there's this contrast with human effort. For example, the sailors, they, they struggle in the storm, right? They can't control what's happening. Um, Even Jonah himself in chapter four, he can't stand the wind and the heat of the sun without growing faint. And so there's that contrast there going on throughout this book. At the very end of the book, God asks Jonah this question. He says, shouldn't I pity the people of Nineveh? And then he doesn't stop there. He actually says, and the cows, right? Like, and the cattle, which is kind of a weird way to end a book. Um, And so why does the author highlight like animals and creation so much? Well, I think one reason is to show that God truly does care about his entire creation. In fact, he actually cares more about his creation, even the animals, than Jonah seemingly cares about people. Let me just say something real briefly about the historicity of this book. So in other words, was Jonah a real person? Were these real historical events? Was Jonah really in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? And there's like debate on this, but I think we have good reason to believe so. Jonah shared, the book of Jonah shares a lot of linguistic parallels and similarities to many of the other prophets in scripture, um, all of whom the biblical authors present as real historical people. Uh, even more than that, in Matthew 12, Jesus refers to the story of Jonah. Uh, he talks about the city of Nineveh. 
He, he treats them as if they are historical uh, figures, historical events. He says in Matthew 12 that the Ninevites, this city that, that Jonah ministers to, that they will rise up at the judgment to condemn those who don't repent. Right? So even the Ninevites would repent. And so at the end, they will rise up and they will condemn those who are unrepentant. Um, Jesus himself compares his own time in the grave with Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. And so I think Jesus treats this story as historical. Um, but that being said, more than just being historical, the author's purpose is theological. In other words, he is trying to teach us something about the character of God. And I think uh, to understand this, we have to kind of think about where does this fit into God's bigger story in Scripture? Okay, so God's, uh, the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah doesn't just stand on its own, but it's this bigger part of what God is doing all throughout the Bible. If you remember back to Genesis 12, God makes this covenant with Abram, and he says to him that uh, he will make him into a great nation and that he will bless him so that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that great nation, as we keep reading in scripture, uh, was Israel. And so later on in Exodus 19, God reiterates the same purpose. God just brings, or he, he brings the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt. And he says something similar. He says, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. And so uh, similarly, right, Israel was supposed to be uh, this mediator of God's blessing to the nations so that all the families of the earth would be blessed, right, according to the Abrahamic covenant. But we realize, and as we read in the Old Testament, that didn't happen because Israel, they started to mistaken their election or God choosing them for exclusivity. They, they started to think, oh, we must be so special. That's all about us. And during Jonah's time, Israel had become comfortable in their temporary military success, and they completely forgot about the fact and they disregarded the fact that God had intended them to be this means of blessing the entire world. And so this is where Jonah fits in. The book of Jonah speaks against this sort of narrow-minded exclusivity of Israel, and it widens our understanding of the reach of God's expansive mercy. I'll say that again. The book of Jonah speaks against this narrow-minded exclusivity of Israel and widens our understanding of the reach of God's expansive mercy. And I know we've been talking about Israel and Gentiles and things like that, but in case any of us are a little too quick to condemn Jonah or to condemn Israel for their shortcomings, we have to realize that the book of Jonah is written for us as well. Because at the very end of the book, it actually ends with this uh, rhetorical question. And it's almost as if like the author all of a sudden just flips a mirror on us as the readers. And, and the author is asking us, are we like Jonah in this sense, right? Are we just exclusive? Do we think we're better than everyone else? Have we uh, drawn these limitations on who deserves God's grace and God's mercy? Do we truly understand that it says in Jonah 2.9 that salvation belongs to the Lord? Um, there's a commentator, Mark Futado. He summarizes it like this. He says, the primary purpose of the book of Jonah is to engage readers in theological reflection on the compassionate character of God and in self-reflection on the degree to which their own character reflects this compassion to the end that they become vehicles of this compassion in the world that God has made and so deeply cares about. And right, so that is what the book of Jonah is about. Not kind of the VeggieTales version or whatever version of Jonah we might have in our minds. This is what uh, the book of Jonah is meant to teach us. 
Okay, so that's our first point, the book of Jonah itself. Um, point number two is the prophet Jonah. And so we'll jump into our verses now. Um, in verse one, we are introduced to this prophet, and it says he is named Jonah, the son of Amittai. And we're only a few verses in, so we'll definitely get to learn more about him as we go along. Um, but what you might not be as familiar with is Jonah's ministry outside of the book of Jonah. Okay, so like his backstory, what is uh, his history? And what we learn from the rest of the Bible is that Jonah ministered in Israel in the 8th century BC, and he, he ministered during the reign of a king named Jeroboam II. Okay, Jeroboam II. And if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings 14. 2 Kings 14. And I'm going to read verses 23 to 27. It says this, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned forty-one years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So I know there's a lot of like weird names and stuff in there, but there's a few important things that I think we learned from that passage. Okay, first, that Jeroboam II was a bad king. Okay, he was a wicked king. Uh, verse 24, it says that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, second, I want you to see that during this time, God restored Israel's borders back to uh, its glory days. Okay, he says that in verse 25. Right? And kind of the history that was going on around this time is that Assyria, which was the superpower of the world at this time, Assyria was just north of Israel. Um, they had been... For years before, they had been pushing in on Israel's borders. And during this time of uh, Jonah's ministry, due to certain, certain circumstances like, like famine and division uh, going on in Assyria, they started to decline a little bit, and Assyria started to fade a little bit. And so by God's providence, Israel all of, all of a sudden had this window of opportunity to expand again, right? They had been pushed in all this time, and now that Assyria was fading, they started to expand again, and they went back to kind of the borders of their glory days. That's the second thing I want you to recognize. Third, is you put those first two points together, right? And it's clear that God was being mercifully gracious to Israel, even in their sin. This was a demonstration of God's grace, God blessing them didn't mean that he approved of what they were doing. Like it's clear, God was not pleased with Israel at this time. He, he let them expand their borders to demonstrate his grace, right? to show that he was a merciful God, to renew their hope, and even more than that, to encourage them towards repentance. And so I think just a takeaway for us is we cannot mistake God's mercy and his compassion with his indifference toward their sin. Um, other prophets speak to that too, Hosea 7 or Amos 7. So that's the third thing. Okay? This doesn't mean that God was happy with what was going on. And then fourth, what was Jonah's role in all of this? Well, he was the one who prophesied that it would happen. Right? He was the one who brought 
this good news. It says, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. So, so Jonah was the messenger of God's blessing and divine favor. Jonah was the herald of good news. He was the one who ushered in the days of prosperity and national pride. This was the prophet who was associated with the expansion of Israel's borders. Okay, so that's the backstory of Jonah. That's kind of uh, some really important context. And so with all of that in mind, here in our passage, Jonah receives another ministry assignment, right? Verse two, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So Nineveh, um, it's called the great city, right? In verse two, Nineveh was one of the major cities of the Assyrian empire of the ancient world. And Jonah's assignment to go here was surprising and even shocking. And a couple of reasons for that. First, God's prophets went to God's people. Okay? And the Assyrians were not God's people, right? They were Gentiles. Um, for God to commission a prophet to visit and to preach to a foreign nation was unprecedented. In fact, Jonah is the only prophet in scripture who is called to do so. Like other prophets, they, they talk about the Gentiles. They kind of allude to God's plan for the Gentiles. But Jonah is the only one who's actually sent to them. Usually the prophets would speak against the nations for Israel's benefit. And so don't miss the irony here, right? Jonah, he is the prophet who is associated with the restored borders of Israel. And now God is calling him to cross those borders in order to go to Nineveh. Second reason this is kind of weird or kind of strange is that the Assyrians weren't just any kind of Gentile. They, they weren't just like your unsaved neighbor. They were uh, a military power who were bent on conquest. They were extremely violent and brutal. Uh, many of the inscriptions and pictures which have been preserved from their time, their national history consist almost solely of military campaigns and conquests. And so these were especially violent and brutal people. In fact, just one generation after Jonah's ministry to Nineveh, when he would eventually go and minister to them, just one generation after that, Assyria would soon rise again to power. And they would come in and they would invade and they would destroy the entire kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. And other prophets like Amos and Hosea had prophesied that this would happen that God would use the Assyrians to judge God's people for their sin if they would not repent. But these were the kinds of people that God was calling Jonah to go minister to. And you have to realize, like, as readers of, of this letter, they probably would have read this after, like, all of this had happened. Uh, they, they would have, like, they would have been people who probably witnessed, who probably heard about that invasion in 722 B.C., uh, maybe an equivalent of this would be like sending a Jewish preacher to Hitler's Germany and telling them, hey, can you preach to the Nazis and to tell them to repent before like all of those atrocities had happened. Now, what is the reason that God sends Jonah there? He says, to call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Um, that language, their evil has come up before me, that should remind us of another pair of cities in the Old Testament who were very wicked. Um, and that's Sodom and Gomorrah, right, in Genesis 18. And if you're familiar with that story, God just straight up, like, wipes, up the, wipes out those cities. And so if we're reading here, we might ask the question, like, why not just do that again, 
right? If, if Nineveh is just so wicked, then why not just wipe them out? Why send Jonah to go preach to them? And we'll get more into that, but for now, I like how Tim Keller summarizes it. He says, if God wants to smash Nineveh, he doesn't need a messenger. But if he wants to save Nineveh, he does. And so at the very least, right, for, for God to send Jonah there, for, for God to give this warning of his judgment was to open the door to repentance. Right? It was to give them a chance. And so what does Jonah do? Verse 3. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And so this would be helpful if we had a map, but instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the complete opposite direction. He heads south to the port at Joppa and then west to Tarshish. And in case you missed it, the author mentions it three times in our verses, right? To Tarshish. And uh, you read about what Jonah had to do. He would have had to pay a hefty price to get on the ship. On, on the ship. Um, his defiance here, his disobedience is deliberate. It is costly. And, and why does he go to Tarshish? Well, the text tells us he did it to flee from the presence of the Lord. And maybe not in a literal sense. I, I think Jonah, especially as a prophet, he would have understood, like, you can't just, like, go away from God's presence, right? Um, he would have known Psalm 139.7, where it says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I go from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So I think Jonah understood, okay, I can't just like totally escape God's presence and his watch over me. But I think what he wanted to do is he wanted to put as much distance as possible between himself and God. I mean, Tarshish was located on the western border of the Mediterranean Sea, and that would have been the edge the edge of the known world in that day. And you think about just like what worship looked like in that day. Worship, Israelite worship, centered around the promised land, right? Around the temple where God's people were. And so for Jonah to go somewhere that was completely off the map, uh, it was him attempting to cut himself off from all of that, attempting to distance himself from the people of God and the worship of God, Tarshish would have been a place where there were no Israelites. And if no Israelites, then no more of God's revelation, no more contact with God. He wanted to be somewhere where he could live free from God's oversight and authority and reach and involvement. Uh, Maybe the modern day example of that for us might be like cutting yourself off from fellowship or, or church or you're just like ghosting other believers in your life because you don't want them to speak into your life, or you start hanging out with a different crowd, um, or maybe you, like, you move away altogether right? because you just like, want to start over. Isn't that what sin does to us? You see, I think often we don't choose to defy God like just to, to do that for defiance's sake. Right? We don't sin because we are like, oh, I should choose the bad thing over the good thing. I think what Jonah shows us is that at the heart of his defiance was he wanted to be free from God's rule. Look, he wanted to live his own life his own way. And where does that lead you? Look at the text. I mean, in addition to the author's repetition of two Tarshish, there's also this repetition of this downward direction. Right? It says Jonah went down. He went down to Tarshish. He went down into the ship. If you keep reading beyond our passage, he went down into the inner part of the ship. And then eventually he even went down into the moment that he's ready to like give up his own life and plunge himself into the sea. 
Jonah thought that he was running for his life, running towards a better life, but he was running from life. He was running from the good and the joy that God wanted for him. I think that shows us that when we want to just take control of our own lives, we want to just live for ourselves or rule uh, for ourselves, that leads to destruction. But as we work our way through this book, we're going to see how God's grace rescues us from that. And so that's the prophet Jonah, right? Hopefully that helps fill you in a little bit who this person was. Now, why does Jonah flee? And it's actually maybe not why you might expect. Uh, This is our third point, the grace of God. So like a good storyteller, the author doesn't actually tell us Jonah's motives until toward the end of the book. And and we'll unpack this more as we get there. Um, But this is what it says in Jonah 4.2. You guys can flip like a page or two if you want to go there. Jonah 4.2. Says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. This is the reason. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. So, did you get the reason, the, the true reason why Jonah refused to go to Tarshish? It wasn't primarily like fear or self-preservation. He wasn't most concerned with what the Assyrians might do to him. He was actually most concerned with what God might do to the Assyrians. And so to go back to our previous point, I think this is where that context from 2 Kings 14 is so significant. Because you think about when when Jonah prophesied uh, about uh, Israel's borders, right? When, When God's message that he called him to bring favored Israel, Jonah had no problem carrying out that task. But when God's message didn't fit into what Jonah wanted to hear, when it didn't fit into Jonah's perceived definition of good, he refused to do it. Jonah, the prophet associate, Jonah who is the prophet associated with Israel's borders, he had drawn and he had defined his borders of God's grace too rigidly. He understood that Nineveh's preservation would have contributed directly to to Israel's imminent destruction. And so he knew that, okay, if if Assyria thrives and prospers, then that's bad news for us, right? Because they're going to come and judge us and destroy us. He thought to himself, okay, we are God's chosen people. God loves us enough to defend us from those bad guys. And in doing that, he excluded others. He imposed limits on God's mercy. You see, Jonah failed to understand something that was very significant, that both Israel and the Ninevites were evil. And and like we said earlier, the only reason why God chose to preserve Israel, the only reason why God chose to restore Israel's borders was not because of what they did, right? Because they were evil. It was because of God's own compassion and mercy. And the fact that Jonah himself saw that the fact that he had a front row seat to that himself when he saw God show mercy to Israel despite their wickedness, that should have prepared Jonah to be the best person to speak that same mercy to Nineveh. Jonah should have been the best person for the job. And yet he refused to go. And so what does this mean for us? I know we've covered a lot. um, And hopefully as we start this book, you kind of have this better understanding of what's going on. Um, But let me just give you two applicational ideas as we close here. 
And I'm sure we'll ex probably expand more on this as we go along. These two questions are on your handout. First question is, do you live your life quorum deo? Quorum deo means living before the face of God. Are you aware that God is at work in the world and in your life? And do you recognize that God is a God who notices, um, who sees, who is active, who takes sin seriously? Now, I think throughout our passage, we see this tendency in Jonah to compartmentalize God's presence and place in his life. Like for Jonah, he can't even fathom the fact that these godless Ninevites over there would even be a thought on God's mind. Like that, he can't even process that. Jonah thinks that he can escape from God's reach by just running away to another place, to Tarshish. Like we said earlier, he ultimately wanted freedom from God's rule in his life. He didn't realize that his whole life was lived before the face of God. And because of that, that led to this disconnect in his life. There was this inconsistency between what Jonah professed, what he said that he believed in, and how he lived and how he actually behaved. Jonah knew all the right things. He said all the right things. He even personally experienced the powerful work of God in and through his life. And yet those things didn't change him on the inside. There was no transformation. And I wonder if that is some of you here tonight. Where might there be a disconnect in your life? Where might there be an inconsistency in the way that you live your life? Where are you clearly defying what God has said? Maybe it's in the area of purity and dating or academic integrity um, or speech. Or maybe you try to excuse yourself and you say, well, the, the ends justify the means. Right? Or, or you, you blame like, the ambiguity of Scripture. You say, well, that's in your interpretation. Right? That's not what Scripture actually says. Is it with how you treat other people? Are you like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? Do you withhold forgiveness, even though scripture calls us to forgive? Do you harbor bitterness towards those who you find less deserving? Have you forgotten the massive debt that you have been forgiven? Are you like the lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10? Like you know what God requires of you in his law, to love others, to love your neighbor, but you still keep trying to justify yourself. You say things like, well, who is my neighbor? Right? Or do I really need to love this person? Does God really call me to share the gospel with this person? Where is there a disconnect in your life? Do you recognize that God sees everything, that he is involved in everything? And then second, do our own hearts reflect the gracious and compassionate heart of God? Do our own hearts reflect the gracious and compassionate heart of God? I, I know it might be easy to just like look down on Jonah and his attitude, but I think in some ways, Jonah actually understood God's grace better than many of us do. Like when you read in chapter four, uh, Jonah knew that God was so gracious that he would spare Nineveh. Like that's how much uh, he understood God's grace. Like he expected God to be merciful to these people. Like he knew God was like that. His problem was that he resented that. Like he didn't agree with that. I think many of us, or I wonder if many of us really recognize the nature of God's grace like Jonah does. That there is something truly radical um, or scandalous um, or maybe even angering, right? Like about the nature of God's grace. 
And maybe one of the reasons we might totally miss that is because often we are just surrounded by people who are mostly the same as us. I mean, for Jonah, it, it required him going outside of his familiar ministry to his own people in Israel and being called to Nineveh, right? To, to minister to people who were unlike him, um, to minister to people who maybe even had sinned against him and his people. Um, I was reading the synopsis of this movie. I've, I've never heard of the movie before, but it's called Secret Sunshine. I think it's like some Asian movie. Um, but in the movie, it's about this protagonist who uh, is this woman whose son was recently kidnapped and murdered. And so she goes to, to visit her son's murderer in prison. Um, and, and this protagonist, she has actually recently converted to Christianity. And so she wants to go to prison to see her son's killer um, because she wants to forgive her or forgive him. And her friends, they tell her like, you know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go forgive him face to face. But she insists, she really wants to do it in person. And, uh, and even deep down, um, she, she kind of wants to see the look on his face when she offers him her forgiveness. And so she goes, and when they finally meet, uh, she's kind of surprised because this prisoner it looks a little bit better than she expected. He's, he's kind of happy, he's kind of peaceful, uh, even joyful. And uh, as they start their conversation, she shares that she's become a Christian, that she has found this new life in God, uh, and she's so happy, and so she's come, and she wants to share his love and his grace. That's why she's there to see him. But then this prisoner says something that she doesn't expect. He says that he has become a Christian too. And he says that God has reached out to a sinner like me, that I have repented of my sins, and I'm so grateful that God has absolved me from all of them. I mean, he tells her, like, I have peace, and I actually pray for you every day. And hearing that actually hits her very hard. And as she leaves the prison, she struggles with that in her mind. She thinks to herself, how could this person who killed my son, and how could I, this law-abiding citizen, be in the same category? That God would forgive both of us? Like, it disturbs her that God could beat her to the punch, so to speak, in forgiving this killer. And ultimately, she can't accept it, and she actually, in the movie, she abandons her faith because of it. I think this is a good picture of what I mean when we're talking about the scandal of God's grace. That God's grace says something about the worst, most undeserving sinner that you might have in your mind, your worst enemy, but it also says something about you. It also says something about us. That you and I are in the same category as them that we are both in need of that same grace. And what keeps us from having that same gracious and compassionate heart of God is when we deny that, when we think we're better than them, right? When we we hold on to our own pride and our own self-righteousness, we think we are more moral or we're better or we're more deserving than these other category of people. We're not humble enough to admit that we are on equal footing. We're on level ground. And so as we go along in Jonah, I think you might, uh, as we study this book, I think you might recognize there's actually some similarities in themes between this Old Testament story and another famous story in the New Testament. Can you guys think of what that is? It's the parable of the prodigal son, right? Luke 15. And both of these stories, they even conclude with a, a cliffhanger with this question at the end. 
And I think in our passage, Jonah is like the younger brother, right? Who, who runs away, who throws away his life in complete rebellion. But even more so, as we go along, we realize that Jonah is like the older brother. And he cannot bring himself to celebrate his father's grace to his undeserving brother. He can't let go of his own works righteousness, his own obedience and moralism. And he doesn't realize that he's just as lost and just as in need of grace. But here's the hope for us, that God pursues both kinds of people. He pursues the worst, most immoral sinner. He pursues the most self-righteous, moral Pharisee. The father who receives the younger son and says, come, bring the best robe, bring the fattened calf, let's eat and celebrate because this son who has been lost has been found. He also says to the older son, look, you are with me, right? I am always with you. All that is mine is yours. Now, even in the Old Testament, we see the legalistic and we see the self-righteous and hypocritical tendencies of Jonah. And we, we see that play out in another group of people, right? In the Pharisees. And, uh, and yet, Jesus, much to the Pharisees' contempt, Jesus breaks through the boundaries of their day, of the conventional social and geographical and moral boundaries of the day. And Jesus moved towards sinners and he spoke with women and he socialized with tax collectors and prostitutes and he touched unclean lepers. And for us, like Jonah, so often we run away from our enemies, right? We resent them. We keep them at a distance. We, we keep them from God's grace even. And yet God moves towards them and God pursues them. And throughout the rest of this book, we're going to see how God pursues not just the Ninevites, but he pursues Jonah himself. And God does not give up on Jonah simply because of his disobedience. Let me just give you one last thought. The book of Jonah shows us that God's redemptive plan does include the Gentiles, right? It includes the outsiders. And this book is a foreshadow of that. And the New Testament is going to be, uh, it's going to be even more fully apparent in the New Testament And I think that reality ought to make us evangelistic missionary people. We are so prone to just limiting limiting God's grace to those who we think truly deserve it. And and that just shows us how much we have truly failed to grasp God's missionary heart. That shows us how much we really don't understand God's heart for people. God wants people to be saved. And so how might that transform how you conduct yourself as a student on your campus? I mean, when you look around as you're walking on campus, do you think to yourself, like, God cares about these people? Maybe in my mind, I've written them off, I've placed them in different categories, but God cares about them. As you guys go off to break soon and you spend time with friends and family, uh, probably some of them unbelieving who don't know the gospel, do you think to yourself, God cares about these people? Like, he has a heart for them, and so should I. Let me just close by reading 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. This is what Paul writes about himself. And, and really, we should all be able to say this along with Paul. 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. This is saying it's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we confess that many of us are like Jonah. 
that we have a small heart for people and we have an overinflated view of ourselves. We think that we are actually better than we are. We think that we can earn your grace and we can even think that other people um, are, are outside of uh, the reaches of your grace. So Father, we pray that you would change our hearts, help us to, uh, to repent, um, to have hearts that are soft, that are merciful, that are compassionate, that are slow to anger. Father, I pray for these students, um, just in the different contexts. Uh, this season of life is one in which they are surrounded by so many different people, many people who don't know the gospel. And we know that your heart is for them. And so, Father, I pray that, uh, yeah, in the coming weeks and this year, as they walk around on campus, as they spend time with friends and family, um, that they would reflect your heart for people. That we would be gracious and merciful people, just as you have been to us. God, we thank you. We pray for just a profitable time in Smogers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.